Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Y'all wake up this morning. I'm going to start yelling at you, okay? James chapter 2. We're going to finish chapter 2 today. Start in verse 14. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your presence, for your anointing, for your people. We pray you'd breathe on this place, fill this place. Lord, speak to us in this hour. Sharpen us. Challenge us, Lord. We give you all our lives. We ask that you'd use this church as an arrow in your quiver. We bless the holy name of Jesus. We just say you alone are worthy of glory, honor, and praise. And there's no one like you, Jesus. You stand far above the rest. Fairer than 10,000. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the saints say amen. Amen. Well, we've talked a lot about Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the past. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the pastor, theologian during World War II, uh, was ultimately put to death for his participation in plots to um, have Hitler overthrown, uh, to have Hitler murdered at one point. He, Bonhoeffer was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, um, a great writer, poetry, his letters are wonderful. Um, and his last work that he was working on was a book called Ethics um, because he was having to wrestle with the ethical dilemma of what to do as a Christian in World War II. He's a German a German Christian in World War II, what do you do with that? And he ultimately comes to the place in his heart where he feels like the only God-honoring thing to do is to try to stop Hitler, um, which um, it would involve participating in a plot to murder. And so that was a, a really interesting Christian wrestling that Bonhoeffer had to do. And so he uh, he had an opportunity when World War II started to to come to the States when 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 Hitler rose to power, I should say, Bonhoeffer critiqued Hitler openly on the radio several times before Hitler um, came to power. And so when Hitler came to power, it was not good for Bonhoeffer. And so he had the opportunity to come to the States and kind of escape all the turmoil. And he actually did. He came to New York. Um, he had friends at Union Seminary in, in New York City. Um, but he decided that he had to go back and that he couldn't just ignore what was happening in his home country. And so he did. And uh, he joined the military. And he was feeding allies uh, information the whole time um, and then eventually began to participate in these plots to overthrow Hitler. He, he again, was primarily feeding information, but the plot that he was working with actually blew up the room that Hitler was in one time. Um, and a big oak desk kind of covered Hitler so he didn't die. Um, but just, again, one of the leading theologians, if not the leading theologian of his day, met with this question, what does it look like to follow Jesus in this context – and then having to wrestle through that. And really, it, we, we've all we've all got to wrestle with that question. Now, Bonhoeffer's context was heated. And he had to come to his conclusions with good conscience, faithful to the word, on what action was required of a saint in that hour, in that context. Our context is not quite the same. But you live in a historical, cultural moment with dilemmas and uh, controversy and culture wars and you have to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian here and now in this day? There are unique challenges to every, to every scenario. And uh, what Bonhoeffer ultimately decides is that he, he can, he cannot, um, call himself a disciple while ignoring the, um, the murder of millions and so Bonhoeffer's best seller. Okay. So he, he wrote quite a bit. Um, 
Gim was a leading theologian and uh, taught seminary, illegal seminary at one point. But his best seller, his most popular book is a book called The Cost of Discipleship. That's really what I'm trying to get to. The premise of the book is found in the name, that discipleship has a cost, that it's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, no man builds a tower without first sitting down to figure out how much it's going to cost him. And the idea here is that to follow Jesus, when you sit down and you begin to decide, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, you got to think through what that means because it's got to mean something. And uh, Bonhoeffer is working against, in the book, Cost of Discipleship, what he's going to call cheap grace. We sometimes call, use the term greasy grace. Um, but Bonhoeffer's uh, basic premise is this, is that you cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus without following him. He said this, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He said costly grace is treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets to follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it'll cost a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but he delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Now, Bonhoeffer made huge, sweeping theological statements in that paragraph of information. Um, but the idea here, again, is that um, you, you can't have Christianity without the cross. And, and you can't have this, this type of Christianity that says, hey, following Jesus is really about uh, just kind of feeling better about yourself and continuing to be your own Lord and worshiping your idols of sexuality. Go keep worshiping your idols of perversion and comfort and be your own God. Who cares? It's all about, you know, kind of cheap. God loves you and move on. He says he appeals to these themes in the gospel where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. And in order to have the treasure, he sells everything that he has, all his possessions, all his dreams, all his ambitions, everything he's worked for for his entire life. He takes it to the market and says, have it. There's one thing that's captured me. Costly grace. It costs the man all that he had to obtain the treasure hidden in the field. Now, as we turn to James chapter 2, we're going to find James arguing um, very much in line with what Bonhoeffer is trying to argue here. 
James is going to argue this is the most controversial passage in the entire book of James. Church history scratches and calls each other's eyes out over the interpretation. But James is going to argue that faith without works is dead. That if you claim to have faith, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be saved by grace, but you have no expression of that faith, if your faith has no skin on it, I I always say, if your faith is not written on the bottom of your shoes, meaning the way that I live my life tells the story of what I believe, then James says, then your faith is meaningless, empty, and dead. Now, let's read the text. I want you guys to pay attention to me today because we're going to have to sparse some things out carefully. And if you don't pay attention, I have some things to throw, okay? And I stay up late at night practicing. Verse 14, we're going 14 through 26 today. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now there's there's lots of lines there we need to think through carefully, but let's just take two steps back and recognize the overarching theme that we've kind of slapped at for the last several weeks. James told us in, in chapter 1 verse 27, He says, true religion that the father considers pure and faultless is this. Take care of orphans and widows in their distress and not be polluted by the world. So he established for us in chapter one that real pure religion expresses itself through acts of charity, through acts of love and compassion. Real religion that the father considers pure cares for the orphan and widow and is not polluted by the world. So compassion and holiness. Remember we talked about this? Acts of charity, of love, and a pursuing of purity and, and morality in life. Real religion is charitable and is pure. Then when we move to chapter 2, he said, um, he condemns the church. He says, essentially, how dare you allow a rich man to come in with fine clothing and give him the best seat in the house and tell the poor man that he has to sit on the floor? Aren't you showing distinctions? Aren't you honoring uh, the culture rather than honoring God? So when we shifted to chapter 2, he's rebuking the church for showing partiality to the rich man while ignoring the poor. So we, f- we find this theme all throughout James, right? His, James is very practical, and he has some, some, some practical matters in mind. And so first he says, if you call yourself religious and you don't care for the orphan or the widow, you're self-absorbed, 
your religion is not pure or true. Then he says, church, if you're constantly honoring the rich man while you ignore the poor, you're showing partiality and distinctions. And remember, James says, that's sin. And now when we move to this conversation about, about faith and works, which again is historically uh, very tense, he starts by saying this. If a poor man comes to you and he's hungry and cold and you say to him, go and be well, be fed and be warm. And you don't actually in any way help to meet that man's needs. He's saying your faith in this expression is worthless. It's, it's um, kind of the epitome of like name it, claim it, speak it stuff. Like saying to someone who's struggling financially or someone who's in a real need, be rich. Um, y- your words are not helpful. James is saying that, that a real expression of faith, when the poor comes to you with hunger and, and coldness, the pure expression of faith would be, imagine this, to feed the man to sacrifice of your own means to get your butt in the kitchen and cook something. A pure expression of faith is not to offer up some words and say, I, I hope you're well and warm. The, in, in, in first century Christianity, um, first century Greco-Roman world, uh, your, your cloak, your clothing, is, it, especially if you're poor, you don't have a ton of clothes. You, does, does that make sense? It's not like you've got 80 jackets in your closet and you can, empty it at goodwill and all is good. But for them, that wasn't the case. And so to give someone, when someone comes to you and they're cold and they don't have clothes to wear, it's going to cost you something to give them a cloak. You're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to dig deep, face your own selfishness, look it in the eye and express your faith by caring for someone else. James says, this is faith. Everything else is, is kind of this worthless lobbying up of words and ideologies. Now, from that analogy, again, which is consistent with the themes of James, James is very practical. From that analogy, he's going to step into a larger argument about what faith is. Now, at the surface, when you read this text, if you read it casually and kind of quickly, you may come to the conclusion that James is disagreeing with Paul. The, the Protestant Reformation was built on this idea that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's, that's very much Pauline language. That's what Paul used in Romans and Paul's language in Ephesians and Paul's language in Galatians, that we are, we are justified by faith Alone, by works of the law, no man will be justified. That's very Pauline. And so some, when they come to James 2, and James says, your faith without works is dead. If your faith does not have the expression of works, then it's not real faith. Some will, some will try to pit James and Paul against each other and say that they're actually arguing for two different things. That Paul's arguing for salvation by faith alone, and that James is arguing for salvation by works. Now, if I could just chat for about two hours, if you could just sit there and listen, that would be great. Um, one, we come to the scriptures with a, with, with a couple uh, um, doctrinal convictions. 
base convictions. One, we believe that the biblical canon, the Bible, all of the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, Luther, in his fight with the Catholic Church, um, I don't know if you've read much about Luther, but um, in, in our house with a bunch of little kids, you would say that Luther has a potty mouth, okay? Um, I have a quote running through my head of what he called the Pope one time. You don't want to hear it. It's very inappropriate. Um, something like a donkey passing gas on the ice is what the Pope was. Um, which sounds like a joke I've heard before in my house. Um, so, so, so Luther was, was passionate and not, not, not always wise in his, in his interactions, but Luther fights and fights and fights with the Catholic church about the idea that we're saved by grace, not through works. And so in Catholicism, there were these ideas um, that you could essentially offer some money to the church for their building project and you could assure that your family member got out of purgatory and went to heaven. And, J- and, and Luther's saying, like, if your family member didn't have faith in Jesus, you giving money, you, this work of giving money to the church, you're not going, that, that doesn't count. It's by faith in Jesus. And so Luther is so passionate about this. And the Catholic Church kept arguing back from this chapter that we're reading today, James 2, that Luther quotes, he says things like, the, the book of James is a book of straw. And uh, Luther wants to take James out of the canon. It's incredibly unwise. Um, and Luther's very reactionary there. Um, but we come to the scriptures with the conviction that it's all Holy Spirit breathed. It's all infallible and inerrant. I was teaching our teenagers last week um, the, the distinctions between the doctrinal confessions when we call the Bible infallible and when we call the Bible inerrant. Um, the, the London Baptist confession or the Westminster confession, th- these are, these are convictions that the church has always believed. When we call the, the Bible inerrant, we are saying that the Bible is without error. There's no error. And that conviction is very common today. People use that language a lot, inerrant. But when the confessors called the Bible infallible, they meant the Bible is unable to err. Now, those are two different distinctions. Um, and one scholar put it this way, and I think it's really helpful. You could read the front page of the newspaper, and the front page of the newspaper could be inerrant, meaning that it could be accurate in all of its information. The, the editors might, they, they didn't make any errors. But the newspaper is never infallible because it's always able to error. Does this make sense? Infallible is unable to error. And so when we come to the conviction one, where we find a, a on the surface, it seems to be a disagreement between Paul and James. The first thing we do is we appeal to the Christian doctrine of old. that This is all from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't disagree with himself. Okay, the Holy Spirit's consistent, thorough, accurate. Secondly, the second conviction that's really plain is this. At least on two occasions in the scripture, we have Paul and James in the same room agreeing with each other. So, so one would be Acts chapter 15. This is what's called the first council of the church. In Acts 15, there's an argument about whether or not Gentile Christians have to be circumcised in order to be considered real Christians. Paul stands before the apostles and argues that, that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. They need faith. And if they confess faith in Jesus, they are new creations and born into the kingdom. 
Now, James is standing amongst the council, and James is actually the one who seems to make the final decision. And James kind of lets the gavel falls and says, this is my decision. Essentially, what Paul says is right. Faith alone. They're, they have faith. They don't need circumcision. So there in Acts 15, we have James and Paul in perfect agreement. Secondly, in the beginning of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, Paul's telling us his story of conversion. He's telling us that he was saved on the road to Damascus. Remember, and then he says, for three years, I spent some time in prayer in Arabia. And then he says, and, and then there was a season where I wanted to make sure that my doctrine was right. He said, I wanted to make sure that I hadn't run in vain. So I went to Jerusalem. And he says, I met with Peter and James and I gave them my gospel. In other words, I presented my doctrine, my full gospel presentation before Peter and James because I wanted to make sure that what I was saying was what Jesus taught and what they were saying. And Paul says, Peter and James gave me the right hand of fellowship and added nothing to my gospel. In other words, Paul tells us in Galatians 2 that when he came to Peter and James, the kind of lead apostles and said, here's my teaching, James and Peter said, attaboy, Paul, exactly right. So we know from the holistic understanding of the scriptures that that James and Paul are not in disagreement. They were in agreement for the entirety of their lives. So when we come to the text with the understanding that the scripture is breathed by the spirit first, we believe in dual authorship, that, 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 that James and Paul both wrote through their personality, through their intellect, in their settings, but ultimately the spirit breathed the text. So the, so the text... Both books, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, and James are all breathed by the Spirit, written by the Spirit. And two, we come with the understanding that the apostles were unified in their doctrine. Then we're forced to read this text a little more slowly and to look for harmonization or synchronization. When we read it slowly, when we slow down and we don't jump to conclusions, you can realize really quickly that Paul and James are actually arguing the exact same thing just to two different audiences. So from here, you guys listening to me so far? Because I'm getting ready to throw something, okay? It's, I'm getting there. Um, Paul's audience is primarily who we've historically called Judaizers. Everyone say Judaizers. Oh my gosh, you're so smart. Um, the Judaizers were those Jewish um ethnically Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They were teaching that Jesus was the Messiah, but the Judaizers were teaching the church, teaching the Gentiles. You cannot, you're not saved by faith in Jesus. You're saved by obedience to Mosaic law. And some of them even wouldn't even confess the deity of Jesus, the virgin birth. They, they just kind of vaguely acknowledge Jesus as Messiah and, and then they taught that if you really want to be a member of Israel and of covenant blessing, you need to follow Mosaic law. This is Paul's primary opponent. So when Paul stands and says, you are not saved by works of the law. You're saved by grace through faith alone. He is saying to the church, to the Gentile church, don't let Judaizers come and tell you that if you don't circumcise your children, if you don't obey the, the calendar dates, if you don't participate in, in the sacrifices, it, don't let them tell you that if you if you don't um, dress in, in Jewish garb that you're not a real Christian. Paul says that's garbage. If Jesus is your Lord, if you confess faith at the moment you say yes to Jesus, the very moment your heart possesses saving faith, you are justified, declared holy. 
The moment you say yes to Jesus, all of your sins are cleansed and you're given the very righteousness of Christ. Don't let Judaizers tell you because you don't look like a Jew, talk like a Jew, you haven't embraced circumcision or you you eat pork that you're not a real Christian. If you have Jesus, your heart is circumcised. If you have Jesus, you're born a new creation. And so Paul's primary opponent are these Judaizers who are presenting a faith which says, um, you've got to jump through all the right hoops. So when an addict comes into our church and they say, you know, in tears, I, I, I need God. I need to get right with God. We don't say, you know what? If you would go through this class and if you would, um, if you would, if you would really change your dress, your garments, and if you would submit yourself to my leadership and we need to drug test you for six months, um, and maybe if you would do all these things, then you could be right with God. No, we say, hit your face on the carpet and declare Jesus Lord and repent of your sins. And if you're sincere, you're right with God today because the blood of the lamb purifies. That That's, that's our confession. And that's Paul's argument. James agrees with that argument totally. James' opponent is someone totally different. And, and if I had to parse this out well, I would say that like Luther's opponent was in line with Paul's opponent. Luther was arguing with the Catholic Church and saying, people are not saved because they gave money to your building project. They're saved when they say yes to Jesus. That's Luther's opponent um, and Luther's argument. He's very much in line with Paul's experience. James's opponent is, is, is very different. James's opponent is very much in line with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's opponent. James is arguing against people who call themselves Christian but live like hell. James is arguing against easy believism. James is arguing against those who say, you know what? I prayed the prayer. I don't actually need to care for the poor. I prayed the prayer. How dare you tell me that I have to live sexually pure? I prayed the prayer. How dare you tell me when and, and where I should show up? How dare you tell me that I need to attend church? I prayed the prayer. That's called antinomian or against law, lawlessness. And that has never been Christianity. In our context today, in, a, in, in Bible Belt 20, whatever year it is, I don't know, 22. Our context is much more like James's, where people around us will say, I prayed the prayer, I'm a Christian. I prayed the prayer. I have faith. And James's argument back is, if your faith bears no fruit, you don't have faith. You have words. It's just like saying to a poor man, go ahead and be fed, man. But but real faith must have expression. It, it expresses itself. James is not arguing that you're saved by works. He's arguing that if you are saved, you will express good works. And it's this, the same context, man. If you're born again, if you salvation is not just the forgiveness of sins, although it is the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is also this experience of receiving a new nature in Christ Jesus. And if you still have the old nature and you're still selfish and perverse and self-absorbed and you still worship your own idols and you live exactly as you've always lived, you probably don't have a new nature. You're probably still dead in your sins. That's the argument that James is going to make. Now, let's look at the text 
closely. Let me actually, let me just pass you by a few, uh, a few passages of scripture. So you kind of get the, the whole account of the, of the text, Matthew seven, verse 18 through 19. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says this, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. Jesus is not saying to a bad tree, produce fruit, work harder. He's saying if your roots are healthy, if you are in Christ, you will live Christ-like. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. He does not say, um, if you really love me, then obey me. You catch the distinction? If you love me, you will obey me. If you're a healthy tree, you will produce good fruit. Galatians 5, 6. Now, this is Paul. This is very much in line with what James is saying here. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Okay, so he's arguing against the Judaizers here again. But only faith working through love. So, so faith is central, but it works. It expresses through love. Ephesians 2, you know this text, but let's just go over it again. Paul again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. You are saved by the gift of God. Not a result of works. You didn't earn it. You didn't perform. So that no one may boast. We are his workmanship. So Christ Jesus, we are a new work in Jesus. Created in Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you didn't earn your salvation through your self-righteous religious performance. None of us stand before Jesus with our chest poked out. Try it. See how long that lasts. Right? Everyone bows before Jesus. No one earns, no one earns a, a standing before God. We've all sinned and fallen short. Who is righteous? The prophet Isaiah says, no, not one. So, so none of us earn salvation. It's a grace and it's a gift. But Paul says in Ephesians and in Galatians, that gift that that seed of faith that's that's deposited in our hearts it produces a life of good fruit jesus says healthy trees produce good fruit now from here let's look at let's look, i'm going to use my tongue right okay words words let's look at our text closely and try to follow james's argument he says faith without works is dead you believe that god is one you remember this part you believe that god is one good here he's appealing to the Shema. The Shema is that, hear, O Israel, God is one. That the Shema is what, what Jews would teach to their children. They would repeat it multiple times a day. It's a basic doctrinal confession. God is one. So James is saying, you, you, you know the doctrinal confession. Well, that's good. He says, um, your, your confession is good and accurate, but the, but the demons also know that doctrinal confession. And the demons shudder. Now, some scholars believe, and actually really enjoy this argument, that when he says the demons believe and shudder, that they may actually be referring to um, deliverance or an exorcism. When some, when a, when an apostle, um, when when the apostle Paul turns around and yells at the fortune teller who's been following him through Philippi, and he turns around and says, "In Jesus' name." Go and she shudders and falls to the ground. Um, they, 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 James may be appealing to this kind of phenomena that happens when a demon is being cast out 
A person shudders and falls. The demon trembles in fear. So James is saying, listen carefully. He is saying, you do have a type of faith. It's just demonic. And now, now that, that feels harsh, but I think we do well to hear Paul's argument, James's argument, forgive me, that the, the kind of easy believism that's very common in the South of I prayed the prayer in middle school and now I live however I want to live and do whatever I want to do. Um, I think James would say that's demonic. That is not a life submitted to the Lordship of Christ Jesus. That's not the Christian life that Jesus died for. That is, that is a demonic expression of faith. The demons believe, yeah, but they're, they live in rebellion and they shudder in fear in the presence of God. Think of um, Matthew 8, 28 through 29. And when Jesus came to the other side of the lake, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. Behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come to torment us before our time? I love the idea of Jesus tormenting the tormentors. But you, but you find them trembling in fear. Demons trembling in fear in the presence of Jesus. They clearly acknowledge Jesus' lordship. They're terrified when he comes. But they are not submitted. They don't belong to him. Demons have right doctrine, but they shudder. Again, James is after real faith. The, the kind of biblical faith that actually causes you to be born again. He's going to turn and, and argue from a very zoomed out perspective. Okay. And so he's, he's talking about Abraham. I'm skipping through my notes now because I'm taking too long. I don't think I'd take too long. I think it's the worship team. I don't know. I'm just saying, uh, I'm teasing. <laughs> teasing. It's me. <laughs> it's me. Um, he's saying of Abraham, for instance, um, Paul says that Abraham was considered a friend of God as righteous by faith before circumcision was even instituted. Circumcision wasn't a thing yet. And Abraham's declared righteous. So Paul's saying again to the Jews who are arguing for uh, salvation by works, look, Abraham wasn't circumcised. He had faith and God called him righteous, imputed righteousness is what we call that doctrinally. James is going to argue essentially. Now look, Paul Paul did, he's not talking about Paul, but, but James is saying, yeah, Abraham did have faith. He, God did call him righteous. And then when God told him to sacrifice Isaac, his faith did something. When his faith was tested, when his faith had opportunity, it expressed itself. And he's going to say the same thing about Rahab. Rahab, she, Rahab is that, that prostitute in Jericho, remember, who, um, when the spies come, she makes a deal with him because she believes that the God of Israel is true. And he said he's going to destroy all the enemies of Israel. She doesn't want any part of that. She's, she believes that God is true. She confesses faith and then she's grafted in to, to Israel. She becomes a, 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 a matriarch in Israel. She's not ethnically Jewish, but she becomes a matriarch. But, but James is going to say, yeah, Rahab had faith. But then remember that she like acted on it. Her, her faith was the foundation of her relationship with God and faith. We are justified, but, but faith is, is, is a power at work within the soul of a man or a woman. Faith is not a mere, it's not a mere confession. It's not just repeating the words. Okay. And now that conversation is a, is a big one we could have. Like the idea that the sinner's prayer is at most a hundred years old. Um, 
that, that's not something that the church did in the past. It, it wasn't a come up front and repeat after me, and then you get a card that says that you're saved. That's, that's not a historic action. Um, and so I know that's really challenging to us. It really took root with Billy Graham, really. And Billy Graham started it, but even Billy Graham was very cautious. He would never call, he would never say 2,000 people got saved at my meeting. He would say, we had 2,000 seekers, meaning that those people who came forward may or may not have actually had sincere faith that caused them to be born again. Walking up front in my meeting doesn't mean that you have real faith. So the sinner's prayer is a really interesting conversation because it's, it's, it's not a biblical expression. That doesn't mean it's anti-biblical. If, if you come and pray a prayer, a basic sinner's prayer, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that Jesus is Lord. And if you pray it with real conviction and faith, then you're absolutely born again. Absolutely, without a doubt, you are born again if you have that real faith. But if you just did a repeat after me because you wanted to feel better about yourself, that's probably demonic. Why did I say that? Because I wanted to, I wanted to be controversial. It was too nice of a sermon so far. We needed a good, we needed a good break. So from here, I'll, I'll, I'll start to wind down here. James is forcing us to zoom out and think about salvation as not just an individual experience of escaping judgment. Do we escape judgment because of salvation? Absolutely. We escape hell because of Jesus and, and heaven is our home. Eternity is our, uh, to be spent in the presence of Christ. Absolutely. But, but salvation is not merely just about me escaping judgment. Salvation is the entire re- re- renovation process that God is doing with creation. So God is concerned with my soul, absolutely. But God in this renovation process is actually not just setting up a deal where we can go to heaven. The long-term goal is that heaven and earth join together. Eden and heaven are restored. And God has an elect, a chosen people that belong to him. Jesus gets a bride. And this bride lives in righteousness, peace, and joy in the kingdom. And so when Jesus saves us and we're born into the kingdom, he doesn't save us so that we can go on continually living like hell. He saves us to participate, to become an integral part of the renovation process. So when the poor person comes and they're hungry and tired and God's heart is broken for the poor, we are now his hands and feet expressing the kingdom through works of charity. So when y'all want to be real political, we can't. Let's just do it. Um, even in matters of the way that we vote, our values, the way that what, what matters to us when we talk about education, what matters to us um, when we talk about um, the, the entertainment industry, we, we, are the, we are the expression of God's values in the earth. We are lobbying for the kingdom to be expressed here in our day. And so we can't say, I prayed the prayer, and I love abortion. We, we have to say, I prayed the prayer. And when I prayed, God transformed my heart. And now from here, we cannot go on allowing the image of God in the womb to be thrown in the trash. It's wicked. We, now, again, that's, that's, the, that's a, an easy one for us. But, but it shakes out in so many ways that my life now is born into this new kingdom. I'm not a citizen primarily of America. I'm not, a, not first a citizen of South Carolina. I'm a citizen of heaven with heavenly values. And those heavenly values trump. They overthrow 
everything in our nation, in our society, in our school system, in our entertainment industry, my values must overthrow everything that dishonors Jesus. Because I'm a part, I'm a piece of the big restoration, renovation, coming kingdom. It's not, but when we think so individualistically and Western, and we think that my salvation was about me not having to go to hell because of what Jesus did, and then we go on living selfishly, we're totally, uh, we're totally amiss. God redeemed you with a purpose. He saved you with a work in mind. Get your hands dirty. And where does that leave us? That leaves us theologically with, a, with what the Protestant reformers, the way that reformers would say it is this. We are saved by faith alone. Period. In other words, you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus. I mean, you could live as wicked as wicked could be. You could have sexual sin, addiction, um, actually, none of that is keeping you out of salvation today. Putting your faith in Jesus, he gives you his own righteousness, right? He imparts to us his own purity. And so your past sins don't keep you out, and your future good works don't retroactively earn you in. You're in because of faith in Jesus alone. So we're saved by faith alone, but the reformers would say, but saving faith is never alone. You're saved by faith alone. Here's James's argument. Saving faith is never alone. When Jesus really captures your heart, you're changed, man. When you've seen the beauty of Jesus, nothing else really matters. And James is saying, hey, if you're claiming to be a Christian and you're not radically in love with Jesus and you don't want to serve him with all of your life and you have no intent on honoring his lordship, maybe you're not a Christian. Um, I think it's really healthy for us to hear that. And so for us in this setting, again, we said that Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to wrestle with what does it mean to be a Christian in the, in the 40s in Germany, a German Christian in the 40s. What does that mean? It can't just, it can't just mean put your head in the sand. That was Bonhoeffer's conviction. We have the same question. What does it mean to be a Christian in South Carolina in 2022? It can't just mean praying a prayer and then going on and living like we've always lived. Our, our faith, if we possess saving faith, it has to express, it has to shake things out, shake things up. And, and, and I would just, just nudge us one more time. Let's, let's, let's let our faith in Jesus transform everything in us and let's get just wild with messing this community up. Let's just mess up everything that dishonors Jesus. Just turn it over. And, and, and that, that, that could, be the education system. That could be entertainment. Let's get some Christians out there singing on the dock while I'm trying to eat my she crab soup. You know what I'm saying? Let's go. Um, the, the Christian commission in Caleb's language is mess it up. Mess it up. Hound, hound your neighbors. Drag them to church. Pull them by their hair. I love, uh, uh, coach Jeff isn't here today. He's at a tournament. Um, but Jeff always tells the story of uh, when he was living in in the world. He didn't get saved until he was a little older. His mom would pay him $50 a week to come to church. Every week, $50 a week. Um, he was an adult. And he just kept coming. And it took years before he really gave in. But his mom just kept paying out. Um, I don't care. Mess it up. Do what you got to do. We've, um, as a church, we've grown. We've shifted. We've made space. We've got lots of space on Hilton Head now. We've got lots of space in Bluffton. I'm saying, like, I just just fully give you permission to let your Christian faith 
not be something that only happens within the confines of your home. Go get after serving the poor. Go get after sharing your faith. Drag the bag boy by his little apron strap all the way to church. And then we can cage him up in the back so he can't get out. Is that illegal? That's probably illegal. I think in this season, I'm, I'm speaking from my heart here, where we are as a church and what we've done over the last several years, I think this is a season where we need to resettle and we need to let our faith in Jesus bear some fruit. We need to get serious about flipping this region over and seeing Jesus really exalted here. We are still, statistically, the church in our county, we're not doing a great job. Um, statistically, the, the, the number of, of unbelievers in our region is bizarre. We, we need to let our faith shake some stuff up. Somebody say yes and amen. All right, why don't you stand to your feet? I'm going to pray over the word, and then we'll get ready to transition. I talked for too long. Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would make us a people of faith that express our faith with good works. Lord, we don't want to live with our head in the sand. Show us, Jesus, what it means to be a a disciple in this hour and in this day. Open our eyes to how we can better make disciples. Open our eyes to how we can better walk in faith. Open our eyes, Lord. Come on, I, I want you to say that with your lips. Make me a better disciple, Jesus. Make me a better disciple, Lord. In Jesus' holy name we pray. All the saints say amen. Amen.